Hello and good evening and welcome to another episode of Religions, Regimes and Refugees and their Multicultural Scam and uh, Mess and the Secular Scam. Thank you very much for joining me again today. I really appreciate it. I hope you're having a good day. Peace, fellas, heal. I know it's very difficult in India right now, but stay strong. It is important. We win some, we lose some. Uh, we're currents in waves. The currents will go forwards and come backwards. Go forward and come backwards. We're not we're not flat earth so understand that don't uh, don't uh, you know don't worry um, you win you win some matches you lose some matches what's what's important is at the end of the day you're still standing and you're standing strong you're you're healing and you're standing together so yes we can all uh, stand together um, Bharat is a great country. It has been a great country for hundreds and thousands of years. We've taken a lot of crap from a lot of people, but it's time to stand together and stand up. And even if we lose small uh, matches, um, we're there for the big ones and we will stand strong. We will heal. We will have that conversation together and we will um, reject anyone who, um, who tries to manipulate us and subjugate us with fear and fear mongering and and we will stand together so thank you very much for tuning in today i really appreciate it i hope you had a good day uh, and a great weekend ahead uh today we're going to talk about something that's continuing um in in the topics in india and a very important part of um of of the islamic occupation and uh history of the land of the Hindustan. Uh, for 1300 years, Islam has occupied, invaded, occupied the Indian subcontinent and various other lands. But, uh, and they've made people dhimmis. We all know what dhimmis. And then after they ask us to apologize to them uh, for, for intolerance, but they, they will, will not apologize for their dhimmitude that they impose on other people. So let's understand the word dhimmi and we'll go from there. So we've heard this word all too often. Second-class citizens, non-Muslims in Islamic State are what we call as low-caste people. They are treated worse than cattle, which Islam denies. However, I've enumerated a par paradigm which very often in this chapter, most concepts and label in Islam are plagiarized from Judaism uh, to gain favor with the marginalized class of people living in and around the Levant. Uh, they anchor their political agenda with the people of the book faking a similarity to form a geopolitical alliance. Once inside their heads, the books of Moses translated in, including Torah and the Talmud, um, the Israelites trust, um, the Israelite trust gained, they intermarried to form a Matisse class and the Israelites people gained full-fledged status of the new Islamic state. The new institutionalized Islamic liturgy was the same old Jewish one, albeit with an Arabic label. It was made. It made the transfer from second-class status to primary Muslim status very easily. Fourteen centuries later, no one remembers. So, what was the old Hebrew concept of dimi? So, in Hebrew, the word for dimi or the concept of dimi was ger toshav. So, I'll repeat that: ger, G-E-R, toshav, T-O-S-H-A-V. Uh, in biblical times, a non-Israelite was called a Gentile. Okay, so during the kingdom of Israel, uh, a non-Israelite, someone who was staying there, like a 
um, like an NRI or non-resident uh, or resident permit, a green card holder, what we have today, a Gentile, who observed the seven no-hide no hide laws of the land of Israel. So Israel had laws, you have to abide by those laws. Um, if he ab abided by those laws, he would become what we call today as a landed immigrant, temporary resident or resident alien. The laws were simple, uh, such as no idolatry, no murder, no blasphemy, no theft, no sexual immorality, no establishment of secondary codes of law, no eating flesh from animals alive. The Gentile would gain this title by swearing in front of three learned men called Chathamin. So C-H-A-T-H-A-M-I-N, C-H-A-T-H-A-M-I-N, in the presence of Israelite rabbinical court. Um, on taking the oath, he would have legal status to live in the land, legal protection and financial assistance, like modern-day unemployment and pension rights without becoming a citizen. The word ger comes from the root word to sejourn, to, to live. The Talmud also goes on to clarify that the person who, sej who lives in the kingdom of Israel can follow exclusively um, the ideology of uh, Abraham. By doing so, he, if he would become a full-fledged member of the state, uh, so if this landed resident lives there and then follows uh, the ideology of Abraham, he would then become a full-fledged member of the state. So from a ger toshav, he would become a ger zedek. Okay, a zedek, a ger zedek is one who becomes full-fledged Israelite. Like we have, so you live in Canada, you live for five years, you become a landed immigrant, and then you become a full-fledged Canadian citizen if you follow the rules of the state. Similarly, Similarly, in Islam, this concept is taken from the people of the book who put their own spin on it, sometimes who live in an Islamic state, swears allegiance to Islam and their version of one God, is a full-fledged citizen of the state and is called a Muslim. Thus, a, mus a citizen of the state is called... Um, a citizen of a state is called Muslim or Muslim when the Muslim requires true faith and deep belief in the Quran, he is called a mumin. So a Muslim and a mumin is different, okay? A mumin who follows the Quran and the full-fledged uh, belief in God, in Allah, he's a mumin. If he's just a resident in the Islamic empire, he's a Muslim. If the Muslim is a person who does not follow the ideology of the state, but follows that of another, but one who lives within the boundaries of the Islamic empire, he is called a dhimmi. They are supposed to have full legal protection under the law they have no contribute they have to contribute to the state in what is known as the jizya tax but are exempt from the zakat tax or paper islam will on paper islam will revert to the treaty of medina to show that everyone was equal no one could kill a dhimmi on paper a dhimmi benefited from equal representation in the political field however in reality on the ground the dhimmi was worse than a second class citizen or lower caste untouchables, so to speak of. The real law that dictated the dhimmi was governed by the Pact of Umar. Here it is. So, a dhimmi in real life on paper, he was a, you know, second, he was a non-resident citizen, he had to pay the jizya tax, and he had representation in the political field. 
but in reality he was a second-class citizen so like a dalit okay he was the dalit of his time uh, they call them dimis but dimis are like dalits absolute dalits and the word dalit comes from hebrew so it's not very far um, prohibition against building churches so in the time of the second caliph umar he had a law they made laws and this law was was to be followed by dimis uh, and this continued in different states. Uh, prohibition against building new churches, places of worship, monasteries, monks, or new um, new synagogues. Although it is known that new synagogues were built after the occupation of Islam. For example, in Jerusalem and uh, other areas, the law that prohibits building new synagogues was not new to Jews. It was also applied during the Byzantines. It was new for the Christians. Okay, So prohibition of building new churches, places of worship, monasteries. Prohibition against rebuilding destroyed churches by day or night in neighborhoods, or in situated in quarters of Muslims. Prohibition against handling, hanging a cross on churches. Muslims should be allowed to enter a church for shelter at any time, both in day and night. Obligating the call of prayer by a bell or kind of gong to be low in volume. Um, prohibition, of Christmas, uh, prohibition of Christians and Jews against raising their voices at prayer times. Prohibition against teaching non-Muslim children, um, teaching Muslim, prohibition against teaching non-Muslim children the Quran. That means even they had to be taught the Quran. Christians were forbidden to show their religion in public or be seen with Christian books or symbols in public on the roads or in markets of Muslims. Palm Sunday and Easter parades were banned. Funerals were, should be conducted quietly. Prohibition against burying non-Muslims dead near Muslims. Prohibition against raising a pig near a Muslim neighbor. Christians were forbidden to sell Muslim alcoholic beverages. Christians were forbidden to provide cover or shelter for spies. Prohibition against telling a lie about Muslims, obligating to show defer deference uh, towards Muslim. If a Muslim wishes to sit, a non-Muslim should be should be rise should be should rise from his seats and let the Muslim sit. Prohibition against preaching to Muslims in an attempt to convert them from Islam. Prohibition against preventing the conversion to Islam for someone who does who wants to convert. Appearance of non-Muslims has to be different from those of Muslims. Prohibition against wearing uh, clothing. Kalasuva, uh, okay, Kalansuva, which is a kind of clothing that was worn by Bedouins. Bedouin turban. Uh, prohibition against wearing Muslim shoes, a sash to their waist. As for their hair, it was forbidden to comb their hair sidewise as the Muslim custom and they were forced to cut their hair in front of their head. Also, non-Muslims shall not imitate the Arab Muslim way of speech or nor shall they adopt kunayas. Um, it's an Arabic byname, such as Abu Qatab. Uh, obligation to identify non-Muslims as such by clipping their heads, forelocks, and by always dressing in the same manner wherever they go, with binding zunar, a kind of belt, around the waist, Christians to wear blue belts or turbans, Jews to wear yellow coats or turbans, Zoroastrian be wears belts, 
black belts or turbans, and Samaritans wear red belts or turbans. Prohibition against riding animals in Muslim custom, prohibition against riding a saddle, prohibition against adopting a Muslim title of honor, prohibition against engraving Arabic inscriptions on signet seals, prohibition against uh, possession of weapons, non-Muslims must host a Muslim passerby at least three days and feed him, non-Muslims prohibited from buying a Muslim prisoner, prohibitions against taking slaves who have been allotted to Muslims, prohibition against non-Muslims to lead, govern or employ Muslims, if a Muslim if a non-Muslim beats a Muslim, his dimmy is dimitude is removed. A worship places of non-Muslims must be lower in elevation than the lowest mosque of the town. The houses of non-Muslims must not be taller in elevation than the house of Muslims. This law still exists in Islamic states today. While they deny this fact, they do not profess it, this concept overtly. Behind closed doors, what they are really professing is the Pact of Umar and much more. At the bottom of the story, we have what is called power. Even in today's world, as long as an Islamic group is in a minority, they will have to sing the song of brotherhood, world peace and humanity. Once they gain majority status, then you have what is called the Pact of Omar. So why, what is so hypocritical of the, of the particular colonial empire and the establishment with regards to the West in which every fact that they have been, um, uh, West is the very fact that they are on foreign land, okay? Uh, so today we have Muslims, uh, people following Islam in every single part of the world, uh, and they're on foreign land, non-Islamic land, or what they call Dar al-Kufr. Land governed by infidels and disbelievers. This means their own religion did not give them the dignity to be human even on their native lands. Hence they choose to leave the land governed by the same religion that is called the religion of peace. The same religion whose perfect Islamic code conduct um, guarantees all its citizens pontificating security then why do you go to non-Islamic lands and insist that their same laws be reinstated so that Islam can govern you? It beats the purpose. It's supposed to be the other way around. Here's the best part. Islam asking same non-Muslim states to guarantee Muslims the human decency of security and sanity, which they could not and will not offer to their own people in Islamic countries. After which, behind closed doors, they ask their congregations to swear allegiance to a bygone state. Um, uh, and glorify the concept of only those who believe in their God. Um, and will attain, who will attain victory for all. And all non-Muslims must follow Deen al-Batl. So they preach one, as one thing the other side and one thing in, in, in someone else's land. So they pretend that they are so perfect, everything is great. They, they treat non-Muslims with the Pact of Umar, maybe not as harsh anymore uh, than they were in, back in the day, but they still, it's not, they don't have any political representation. All non-Muslims are said to follow the, the Deen al-Batl, the religion of falsehood, 
by obeying their own laws and swearing allegiance to their own agenda camouflaged by God, they maintain a state within a state. They then classify the bigger state as Darul Kufr, land of infidels and disbelievers. Islam multiplies and grows until they take a bigger state, take over the bigger state, and acquire totalitarian power. Until this bigger state will remain a Darul hub, a land of war. That means there will be war in this land, like like in India. They will make sure that this continuous war in India until it becomes a, a, a land of Islam. So until that time. This land of war, Darul Hub, will become a land of Kufa. It is will be a land of Kufa, and they will not stop uh, this Darul Al Harb, this war, until they overtake the state. The goal of the Islamic Ummah community on Kufa land is to be on a mission or a struggle, as in a non-stop jihad. The mission is to impose Islam, Islamic colonization throughout the whole world until Islam not only encompasses the whole country but the globe. Until then they will be on a struggle or part of war. Translation, if the planet wants to stop all wars, they have to convert to Islam. The Quran verse 4, chapter 4 verses 141 says, those who wait, if you gain victory from Allah, they say we were not with you. But if the disbelievers have success, uh, they say to them, did we not gain advantage over you, but we protected you from, disbelief, from the believers. Um, Allah will judge you in the day of resurrection and never will Allah give the disbelievers or believers a way to overcome them. Then comes the dhimmi status and the pact of Umar. But why don't we understand this concept? Well, we don't have the science. We rely on the labels to understand the mentality. The label is always sweet talk to control you, and this goes for any group or macro or micro. But it is the mentality that controls the label. It is the mentality is always about submission to gain power. So, my friends, this is the concept of Dimi. It comes actually from Hebrew, which is Ger Toshav, uh, and that was taken over by Islam, because Islam is started, uh, in my opinion, by Hebrews, the, the text and everything, and the, and the revelations, all of it, a lot of it comes from Hebrew, Hebrew text, Hebrew converts, Hebrew people of the book, who then joined the movement in Medina, um, that's Yatrib, and a lot of these these concepts were converted over, and then after that they added the Pact of Umar. So the Pact of Umar is to to subjugate people who are not uh, do not convert to their uh, their political movement, and once they they um, have the Pact of Umar, uh, they make sure that they code you as a second class citizen, Dean uh, uh, Dimi, which is the Islamic way of saying Dalit, that is the Dimi is the is the Dalit of Islam. They make sure that you understand that their people understand that you are following a Deen al Batal and if you they are the minority and you are the majority, they will make sure that you are the Dar al Kufar and they are they will have a Dar al that means a, a land of war continuously until they overtake the land. Okay, so you will never stop being at war 
until uh, they sort of go away or disappear, which is not going to happen. And unfortunately, uh, you have to understand this in order for you to go ahead and and not get angry, but to understand where this is coming from. This is not a religion. This is a colonial empire. Uh, branding it as a religion is 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 what the problem is and you have to heal by understanding that you're not you don't have to submit to this you don't have to follow it and have this conversation with your friends with your family with your with, with people around you uh, and make sure they understand it in order to for you to say you do not fall in this trap uh, you do not fall in a trap of of trying them for them to continue trying to get get you to say oh this is a religion it's not it's a colonial empire uh unfortunately it is what it is all abrahamic religions are colonial empires all religions are feudalism uh but there is no god in this abrahamic empires absolutely zero god and unfortunately it is what it is so you can change it by healing by understanding what the concept is you can you can uh, google it dimmy you can uh, google the the jewish concept ger toshav and uh from there you can absolutely um you can then uh, understand how it became um how the pact of umar was born uh you can understand how the um this dimitude got worse and worse and worse was carried on to different continents um and then and how they they propagated the dar din al battle the dar al kufar the dar al harb in order for them to overtake you and this is exactly what's going on right now in india they are doing everything in their power to uh continue this um dar al harb until they subjugate you and insult you so uh that's basically what it is for um for dimmies i will now go to something called apostasy so once you become part of islam uh you're you're done forever okay and uh you can leave quietly but in if you're an islamic state you cannot never leave um it's the same as Christianity in, in ancient Christianity. You could not leave. And actually even today in, in, in India and in uh, Asian countries uh, where Christianity has a whole, you can't leave really. They'll, they'll, you know, sort of ideologically, mentally, emotionally destroy you. Uh, but that is what it is. So let's go to apostasy. I don't know if I've spoken about this before. I've spoken about so many things, but I'll go back to it a little bit. So apostasy, a Middle English apostasy late latin apostasia greek coming from greek apostasias literally revolt or defection all three abrahamic feudal religions have apostasy as part of the ideology uh it's an act of leaving one's religion in judaism one finds mention in deuteronomy islam is as usual very contradictory in the quran we get no compulsion uh in religion uh, that's only when Muslims are minority in Medina. Once they become a majority, they abrogated the worst. The punishment for apostasy in Islam is death, as in, in the Hadith al-Bukhari, um, Diyat Bab 6, where Muhammad said, whoever changed the Islamic religion, kill him, uh, which I don't agree, which I don't think is right. 
I don't think it was Muhammad, but it was written 200 years later in his name. Um, it's Sahil Bukhari 9 verses, chapter 9 verses 83 um, and 9 chapters 84. Uh, both state the apostates can be murdered. The Quran, Surah 3 verse 72 and chapter 4 verse 137 say that those who reject faith after accepting their repentance will never be accepted. In other words, apostates and probably heretics too can never be saved. Uh, that's Quran, Surah 4 verses 89, Surah 11 verses 12, Surah 88 verses 21, Surah 5 verse 54, Surah 2 verses 21 also talks about apostasy and punishment. Here is the context. All these religions are colonial empires, very much like the armed forces of today. A deserter will be punished and court-martialed. Back then, a court-martial was called apostasy. Since the state camouflaged their political agenda with divine intervention through their theologians, this rhetoric was never questioned but accepted as a request from God. Uh, if God really existed, the empires would never have collapsed. But they did. Their God remained behind as one one cannot see God in blind faith. Then the theologians sold their theocratic narrative to whichever the next empire passed by. And the rhetoric continued today. As I like to say, while the empires are dead, the divine departments are open for business. They need our human capital to resurrect the empires only to suit their vested interests. Behind the very religion is a business empire. Thus, the rhetoric is not only enforced depending on the country and the local region, the community and the family too. But it is carried on with honor to justify any type grip of society with micromanages its economics, micro and macro. The mentality is maintained just that you can keep tabs on your monetary capital. Do you let your uh, dollars fly away or someone else take it to your detriment? But all, all these theocratic establishments, we human capital beings are capital, human capital, capital which is used to gain interest while maintaining and using their power-centric Western agendas. The more human capital they have, the more money they have uh, and power to maintain. Why would they let it go? Hence the violence to do, the violence to do anything to make sure that you are subjugated as slaves. Uh, so basically, that's what it is. I'm going to talk about one last thing over here, which is important. Have you heard of uh, RIBA or USRI or banking without interest? So no interest loans, no interest, no interest mortgages. Um, the Sharia doesn't allow interest is what they say. Have you heard of that? Well, guess what? We're going to talk about it. Uh, so banking without interest, it's called USRI or RIBA. Okay, so you might have heard about this concept of, or rather the term Islamic banking. Let's get something straight. There is no banking in any Islamic scriptures, primary or secondary, but must have been written about the concept. To begin the usury in another term which is found in literature among all three Abrahamic groups, Islam, Jewish and Biblical. The Exodus chapter 22 verses 25 to 27, Leviticus chapter 25, verses 36 to 37, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 20 to 21, the Psalms in New Testament chapter 15 to 55, Ezekiel 
chapter 18 to 13, both the Torah, I think the Psalm is also the New Testament, I'm not sure, but you check that out, one out. I apologize if it's the Old Testament. Uh, both the Torah and the Talmud encourage lending money without interest. In Hebrew, the word for interest is neshek. So N-E-S-H-E-K, meaning interest deducted in advance from the money loaned to the borrower. Okay, the word marbit or tarbit, which denote the gain on the creditor side. Okay, um, so which in later Hebrew becomes ribbit. So the actual word is marbit or tarbit, which denotes the gain on the creditor side. Uh, this becomes ribbit in, in later Hebrew, he, Hebrew terminology. This then this ribbit then becomes riba in Arabic, which is used in the Quran to denote interest. Okay, so the term riba in Quran in Arabic comes from the Hebrew word ribbit, which then which itself comes from the word marbit or tarbit. In simple terms, if a person borrows money from you. When it's paid back, do not ask for interest on the loan. Again, this is a person-to-person -person and does not involve trade. Trade is about making profit and interest, which is your salary. So the Quran, verse 2, chapter 2 to 75, has clearly, but God says clearly, but God is permitted trade but forbidden usury. There are other verses that talk about interest in the Quran. Chapter 3, verse 130. Chapter 2, verse 276. Chapter 2, verses 280. Having said all above, when you trade, your goal is a profit. You do not trade or make a loss or be even. The profit is, sal is your salary. Trade is anything from goods and services. Banking is a financial service to make a profit. Banking institutions, like any other industry, have a moral responsibility towards society and their clients, however, their existence is to trade money and make a profit. However, your Islamic friends have invented a new term called Islam, our Islamic friends have invented a new term called Islamic banking. Thus, by these standards, uh, Islamic banks lend interest-free loans and mortgages. Where does the profit come from to pay for this overhead? It's simple. If your client is buying a house worth $100,000, they will not charge you interest on the loan. However, an original, the original committed amount of the loan will say 100 plus 60K. So the total of the loan will be 160K. That 60K is profit, which would otherwise be termed as interest by mainstream banks. That's just an example, okay? I'm not giving you a, a actual number. There's no, uh, just, just an example. So basically, you're still make, they're still making a profit. They just changed the terminology. So instead of saying, I'll pay you 2%, uh, you'll have to pay 2% interest. Instead of saying that, they'll say, right off the bat, you, you, you have to pay us 123000 120000 The 20000 is interest. So they're still making a profit. They promote halal services like no investment in alcoholic companies, poke, gambling, excessive uh, uncertainty industries. So in reality, it is just another day of doing the same business with religious labels to attract capital and legitimize your business and financial agenda. Like I always say, behind every religious and cultural decision, there is a business decision. Islamic banking 
began to take a foothold in 1975, when non-Islamic world had a grip on world markets and controlled most of the world finances. How does one get a foothold and attract clientele and has no faith in you? God. So in 1975, when the Western world, uh, the European world, controlled the finances, your the Islamic world was nowhere because the empire just came crashing down. They never had any banking services. In order to join these banking services, they needed a marketing campaign, and that marketing campaign was God. So other religions have done the same in the past. By using this Islamic model or label, they guarantee themselves a clientele and, of course, a place in Islamic heaven or Jannat for their base. At the end of the day, the same crony feudal lords are making big money behind the scenes, while their flock invest in human and financial capital in a concept that has take, not taken them anywhere for 1400 years. Therefore, the same rhetoric is used as bait to draw in their dischanted clientele. The West is haram. The West has no morals. The West has no values, no culture. Their religion and institutions are deen al-batl. We are the only true religion of God. Our beloved prophet told us not to trust the kufar. Only we can deliver you to the true places in heaven besides Allah. Before you know it, their congregations have invested their capital into halal institutions. But like everything else Islamic, banking is no more the way to colonize their congregations below and pocket their human and financial capital. There's a big debate going on within the Islamic society or ummah, whether this type of enterprise is good or bad. There are various camps, each taking ideological sides on the issue. Some groups call it fraud, as Islamic banking cannot operate as an independent mechanism in the modern financial world. Their products and services are benchmarked to haram interest rates, such as London interbank offering rate, unless, of course, they take on a financial world and destroy it, which will come when they convert the planet to Islam. Their ultimate goal? So, while the debate rages on, and will go on as long as there's money to be pocketed by the ruling class, their congregations on the ground continue to be morally coerced to do banking only within this framework. If not, they are threatened with a kufr in hell. So, absolutely, this is... Um, uh, this is just a marketing campaign, and they use all terms from the from the Quran, which actually come from, um, which actually come from Hebrew, uh, Judaism, like everything else, and it is only done to gain a foothold in the financial world, which they've got, and you know it's a clever marketing campaign, and here we go. So it is what it is. Um, I hope you have some interpretation, some insight into this um and uh we'll go from there well thank you so much for your time i hope you have a great day um please it is important these concepts are important to give you an idea a foundation a baggage uh to have a conversation um it is there to have a conversation with your friends share the conversation have it share the podcast uh, it is important to understand these concepts. If you go into a conversation, you don't understand these concepts. 
it means absolutely nothing. You're not going to go anywhere. You're going to get yourself into trouble and it's not something you want to do. So knowledge is the most important and the most effective tool in any conversation. There are no guns, no violence. Knowledge is the base of, of everything in life and it gives you power, it gives you strength, it gives you confidence. And once you have that confidence, you can go onwards and, and, and heal. Um, if you want uh, to win your country back, if you want to stand up and be a better country, it is important to have this knowledge. So thank you very much for your time. Peace, everyone. Cheers and uh, stay safe.